The storm blew down the latrines and collapsed the gen shed around the generator, but Eagle House and the Nissan hut remained intact, largely because in the calm before the storm, a heavy dump of snow altered the shapes against which the wind worked. The square cross-section of the building provided sufficient windage that without the snow bulwark, the hut may have collapsed and everyone died shortly thereafter. Marshall improved the protein available to bury beyond spam and corned beef by catching fish. Using seal meat as bait, then red rags, then bare hooks, because some fish will take all the challenge out of fishing, he experienced far greater success than the waters of Port Lockroy afforded the Base A residents the previous year. And in the teeny tiniest of iced coffee digressions, that reminds me that I've long wondered how people who work for Hormel Foods communicate via email about their premier product without every message ending up in the spam folder. The fish supply kept up through the winter months, Marshall angling through a hole cut in four foot thick sea ice. None of the documents available to me note the species or the depth Marshall drew them from, only that each fish came in at just under a pound in weight, which rules out most of the shallow water species I'm familiar with from the Ross Sea. Taylor's leadership got people's backs up far more than Mars. Perhaps it was years at sea in close quarters with others, perhaps it was innate. Either way, Mars' willingness to go gentle with people's mistakes and to ignore annoying behavioural idiosyncrasies made the 1944 winter at Base A far more congenial than the 1945 one at Base D. Berry, already Taylor's whipping boy, couldn't retrieve what grudging respect his cooking eked out of the Canadian the previous year due to the low variety of the ingredients available to him. Taylor forbade Berry unsupervised access to the alcohol supply and barred him from the radio room so he couldn't read confidential correspondence. Preparations for spring sledging saw Russell in charge of sledging rations, working closely to the patterns set by the British Grahamland expedition and servicing the chronometers. Mackenzie was in charge of camping equipment, and James took over care of the dogs from Marshall, the pair tailoring individual harnesses out of Lampwick with assistance from Russell. Taylor planned three main sledge journeys for himself and these three, taking James and Russell as surveyors and including Mac as the most experienced sledger, and likely because he got along better with Mackenzie than anyone else and didn't fancy sharing a tent with someone he felt below himself as he seemed to have thought of almost everyone other than Mackenzie. This fixed sledging party rotor saw nine of the Base D residents confined to Hope Bay for the year, six of them having never left Port Lockroy the previous year. In later, less fraught times, British winterers received opportunities to head off base for recreational camping trips as an initiative to prevent toastiness and toastiness catalyzed base friction Phil Wicken's trove of Antarctic reminiscences are never more captivating than when he recounts the adventures that he took base staff on during their annual Austral holiday, and I think he spent more time in Antarctica under canvas than on base or on ships and boats because of his duties as field guide for those sanity-preserving forays. The sledges, still hauling anthracite up from the shore depot on the other side of the bay with their dog teams, gradually found their pattern for rigging and running their particular huskies finding the long fan trace best answering their particular inexperienced needs as seemingly the least likely to allow the dogs to fall out of their particular place in the order 
noted as a notable no-no in the available documentation. Mac describes the outcome of a practice run during which the command used to make a dog team turn to the right fell out of mind. The dogs crested a hill and, sighting home in the distance, made for it in a straight line in spite of a section of bare rock dead ahead, approaching it at full downhill tilt, the lichenologist holding onto the handlebars in a funk. I hand over to Mackenzie's account in The Secret South once more. Quote, I suppose we were travelling at about 20 miles an hour when we hit the rocky patch. Immediately, with an awful rending sound, the sledge began to disintegrate. First, the cowcatcher snapped off and was left by the wayside. Then the front end of one of the runners struck a projecting rock and flew away with a bang. Moments later, at the broken end dug in, the whole left side runner tore off with a splintering crash, and the sledge continued, with unabated speed, careering lopsided on its foundering superstructure. Just before we reached the snow slope on the other side, the other runner split into a fibrous mass of kindling and scattered on all sides, accompanied by the right hand upright and the top piece off the handlebars. By this time, acting on the blind instinct of self-preservation, I was draped over the oil drum, clinging to its rim and sides with hands and legs. In this condition, we reached the snowdrift at the foot of the hill, just in front of the settlement. I have a vague recollection of hearing confused shouts and seeing figures rushing up from all sides, but my only distinct memory is that of being pulled out by the feet from a snowdrift in which I had been buried head first. Eyewitness accounts agree that the dog team, the oil drum, the remnants of the sledge and myself all parted company at this point and went our several ways, the arc which I described through the air before hitting the snowdrift being, by all accounts, most gracefully executed. End quote. Impressed by the incident, Davies and James fabricated a foot-operated depressor brake system for the sledges, while a chagrined lichenologist assembled a replacement sledge from components drawn from stores. Bicycle odometers sent out from Britain to replace Ashton's improvised sledge meter proved too fragile in the cold, so Ashton once more set to, applying an improved version of the previous year's invention using the sturdy ship's log mechanism Matheson devised a tarpaulin to waterproof the sledges into passable boats for short-distance water crossings. Davis fabricated canvas doggy boots to save the huskies' paws from the wear and tear of working over salt ice. July saw Hope Bay receive a systematic geologising and botanical survey with large numbers of specimens of particularly fine fossils, some of them the most delicate and detailed preservations yet seen from Antarctica, catalogued and packed for the British Museum. Gunnar Anderson already discovered and described the deposit in the book he published with Nordenweld, but the base D collection constituted the first substantial removal of material for further study. Few lichens new to Mackenzie's collection arose from Hope Bay, but she accepted all donations from the enthusiastic cadre of amateur lichenologists graciously, even as she often bunged said specimen out of the window once the collector departed. She wrote about the beloved combination of algae and fungi thus. Here we are presented with a picture, and not a very entertaining one, of the whole earth eons hence, when the sun will have lost its splendour and contracted into a dull red ball in the blackness of the firmament, and our planet becomes a whitened sepulchre, idling aimlessly through all eternity. How one thrills then, when one's fingers extract a tiny tuft of moss or lichen from a crevice in these ice-bound rocks, and hold before one's eyes the proof that something living 
something of our own nature has managed to cling and persist in the face of this outrageous icy onslaught. But the tiny cryptogram toils not, neither does it seek explanations of its presence there. End quote. Midwinter saw Berry produce another feast, and James produced the first edition of The Hope Bay Howler, a publication in the British Antarctic tradition featuring articles and diggy anecdotes and vignettes from anyone who cared to contribute. At Deception Island, the day after midwinter, Charlie Smith found Samuel Bonner unconscious in his Base B accommodations. Lieutenant Reese, realising the 60-year-old wasn't in good health shortly after his arrival on site, relieved Bonner of physically taxing duties as his health deteriorated under the rigours of Base B life, but no ship could reach the island to relieve him by that time of year. Radio consultation with Dr Back saw Bonner's condition receive a provisional diagnosis of a brain hemorrhage. The Falklander came too some days later, but remained a source of continual concern, adverse developments later leading back to a diagnosis of stomach cancer. I'm hoping things improve and future generations will look back at our present day approach to stomach cancer as the dark ages, but with chemotherapy and gastrectomy the main options available to us today, the five year survival rate for an early diagnosis remains grim. There was nothing available in the 1940s beyond palliative care, which in that era comprised fluffy pillows and milky tea. Deception Island could only offer the latter, and with powdered milk to boot. The Labour Party victory in the UK general election in July, seeing Clement Attlee take over from Winston Churchill as Prime Minister, added to the gloomy mood that Bonner's illness set, and led to dark forecasts at Hope Bay for the future of the expedition. The hoped-for sustained presence in Antarctica might not survive the political gear shift and the wake of the war. On the 15th of August, the Base D residents celebrated the Japanese surrender with a fish fry-up. The first sledging foray followed the Hope Bay Hopeful's 1903 salvation path to Snow Hill Island using two teams of seven dogs each. The big boys, driven by Russell and James, and the odds and sods, Originally named, originally named the debased and insulted by the scholarly lichenologist, driven by Taylor and Mackenzie. Back, Davies, Marshall and Matheson helped haul the heavily laden sledges to a depot laid up the aptly named Depot Glacier, where the sledges topped up the tanks and the eponymous depot. The human booster engines helped push on to Summit Pass, heading back to the hut as the sledges made camp at this highest point on the journey. Poor weather pinned the sledge party at the pass for a day, but they then descended to Deuce Bay, known then as the Bay of a Thousand Icebergs, and began working across the sea ice in several subsequent days of fine conditions. Each human took their turn breaking trail, generally followed immediately by the larger sledge, towed by the big boys, this in turn making a better surface for the smaller odds and sods, towing the nine-foot sledge. During this trek, Mackenzie, already popular about base as a good listener, an even-tempered colleague, and for an ability to find humour and good cheer in almost any circumstance, inspired even greater admiration in James and Russell. Ten years their senior, Mac could wade through waist-deep snow without pause or complaint, long after they wearied in the first half hour. The respect, 
trust and affection Mackenzie engendered in colleagues over the two years the bulk of the party spent together finds its only Antarctic history analogue in the love afforded to Edward Wilson by the members of Scott's expeditions. You're probably well sick of vignettes in which dog teams overrun and tear apart hapless penguins, so I'll skip this one other than to note Mackenzie made the literary most of the phenomenon in The Secret South, ending the anecdote with, quote, The dogs lipped their bloody muzzles with relish and grinned up at me with lolling tongues to see how I appreciated their joke. End quote. Daily distances to Vega Island stayed low due to the variable conditions in which the teams found their sledging groove. Making and breaking camp gradually found an efficient rhythm, and a depot laid at Vortex Island, named for the Willowars that made life interesting thereabouts, lightened the sledge loads. In spite of Taylor's drilled-in Arctic travel mantra, never go anywhere without your snowshoes, the party depoted all but one pair of skis and Taylor's pair of snowshoes, figuring the polished sea ice conditions would continue from there on. Good sledging down the Crown Prince Gustav Channel seemed to reward the depot decision, and on the 20th, the party came parallel to James Ross Island, then known simply as Ross Island, only later receiving the prefix to avoid confusion with the other Ross Island on the other side of the continent. Waddell Seals, encountered en route, received a bullet and an invitation to dinner with the dogs, the liver and the rump steaks going into the human's hoosh pot. I've been told by Arctic dwellers that fresh seal meat, eaten raw, hot and dripping, is one of the most invigorating mouthfuls of sustenance on the planet, providing an immediate surge of heat and vigour. The borderline numinous anecdotal endorsements seem well supported by the dogs staying up late making noise and fighting after their fortifying feed, the fights continuing into the next morning and delaying departure. Glacially forced pressure ridges and poor weather slowed progress toward Cape Longing, and as Snow Hill Island came into view from behind Ross Island, Taylor began to fret about their remaining fuel supply. On the 23rd of August, the two dog teams separated for a day of exploration in opposite directions, Taylor and Russell heading toward the peninsula and up a 1,300-foot peak offering views out over the Waddell Sea from which to take a comprehensive set of angles, and Mackenzie and James heading to Cape Longing itself, finding numerous fossils in the sedimentary formations there. Banking on finding some food and fuel at Nordenweld's hut on Snow Hill Island, the party turned east, and while they made good progress in fine weather, the sea ice surface to the south of James Ross Island saw the men rue their dearth of skis. The surface crust of icy snow held the sledges well enough, but the men regularly broke through to their knees, making for some hard slogging. Another day of good distance, followed by one pinned down by strong winds, saw the dog teams separate. Taylor and Mackenzie pressed on to Snow Hill Island. James remained in camp, hearing but never able to respond to Donachie's radio schedule, while Russell headed to a headland on James Ross Island that Nordenwell recorded as home to a sledging depot. Taylor and Mackenzie reached Nordenwell's Snow Hill Station. Packed with snow, whistled through by wind, and bereft of anything of value or interest after Lincoln Ellsworth's visit, the hut proved a disappointment to Taylor, who'd imagined enjoying a novel meal of Swedish preserved goods and a pipe by a coal fire 
while the sleeping bags dried in the rafters. What food did remain proved inedibly perished. A box of candles was the only useful item retrieved. Russell fared far better at the James Ross Island depot, where tins of sardines, pemmican and butter proved edible, and stocks of dried apples, prunes and vegetables, tea and sugar refilled the sledge tanks to the tune of 50 pounds of bonus vittles. No fuel, though. When the two parties regrouped the following afternoon, Taylor laid it out plain. They had to turn for home immediately unless they found a depot laid by Lieutenant Irizar aboard the Uruguay at Penguin Bay. James and Russell found the depot while out looking for Taylor, who'd separated from an earlier scouting party. Of the food left behind by the Uruguay, around half still seemed edible, including tins of corned beef, rice, beans, and bags of once-powdered sugar congealed into rocky lumps, which sledges broke shards off to suck like boiled sweets. Bottles of orange bitters yielded unfrozen, almost neat, alcoholic supernatant fluid, which made that evening's camp a merry one. And a message tin. And a spare primer stove. Some reprieve from the time pressure on the calorific front, but still no stove fuel, so Taylor ordered they press on for home on the 31st of August, in spite of whiteout conditions. Sledging to the compass course in the foggy, perspectiveless nowhere of the flat light proved mentally taxing and prevented surveying, but they couldn't afford to lose a full day's mileage. Taylor's navigation saw them reach Coburn Island, site of a landing by James Clark Ross in 1843, and where Joseph Hooker's lichen collections constituted the southernmost botanical collection to that date. Mackenzie, having worked on some of Hooker's specimens, felt compelled to visit the site and make collections, but the pervasive cold of the sunless day sapped even that dedicated lichenologist's enthusiasm after just an hour, much to the relief of everyone else, eager to get moving for the sake of the warmth that exercise generated. The 1st of September saw the party stay put in the hope the fog might lift and allow a round of angles by which to update maps and charts a writing from Nordenwell's work, thereby stamping Taylor's and incidentally Britain's mark on the ground. The fog didn't lift, and indigestion, linked to a feed of 40-year-old bully beef and beans, didn't sit well with the carbon monoxide headaches Mackenzie and Taylor developed when their tent's ventilator blew inverted and failed to do the one job denoted in its name. At least the cause of their losing a day on trail also caused a loss of appetite, thereby saving them a day's rations. With dog food running low, dogs no longer ate on days spent laid up. Any time the party struck camp, the huskies scavenged the site thoroughly for overlooked morsels or human excrement. No one notes serving their wastes to the dogs hot, but even if the idea occurred to a British naval officer, I doubt they'd write down a record of it. One doesn't like to brag, don't you know? So gosh, those Yanks. Gentlemen, don't shit and tell. What? Huh. Critically low stove fuel reserves forced Taylor to quit his plan to survey, and the party harnessed up on the second. 35 miles to the depot at Vortex Island. If they cut their primus use to two hot meals a day, and avoided using the stoves to heat the tents and dry their clothing, they might squeak that in but the conditions didn't hold in their favour. The weakening dogs worked up to their bellies deep in sticky snow, and every human footfall sank to the knee. 
the nine-foot Nansen unit became more a snowplough than a sledge, and the dogs wearied of starting at each friction-imposed stop. James and Russell decided they needed to relay, catching up to Taylor and Mackenzie and then returning for the second tranche of their load while the weather held. Overall, the party only made good four miles. The following day, Taylor broke trail in his snowshoes, but the dogs, exhausted through insufficient food and dispirited by the deep snow and the regular stops, stopped providing much pulling power. Adding to the misery, the weight of snow accumulating on the sea ice saw the surface deflect, and super-chilled seawater seeped up through every fissure, making dogs and men work through the bonus difficulty of a slush layer every time their feet broke through the upper crust. James and Russell had to relay once more. Three miles made good for the day. Facing imminent canine euthanasia, and possibly the death of the entire party if a sustained blizzard blew in, the sledge loads came under careful scrutiny with an eye to shedding weight. The cameras, the theodolite, the radio, and miscellaneous articles adding up to 400 pounds went by the wayside, marked by the theodolite tripod for later collection. But in true Wilsonian style, Mac kept the fossils among the food and the camping gear. The fourth proved even worse. James and Russell suspected creeping frostbite in their feet, and the dogs walked in slack traces, no longer helping at all but for the occasional burst. The sledges bogged down in the slush. Three and a half miles for the day. Russell began the glassy-eyed decline into mental dullness exhibited by Taffy Evans in his final days on the trail with Captain Scott. That night, Taylor heeded James and Russell's request to hold a council of war, which in retrospect he probably regretted. James put forward a proposal that they should turn back to Snow Hill Island, make a portion of the hut habitable, and use the rest of the hut to fuel a fire, on which to cook the dogs while waiting for the seals to arrive with the spring thaw. Taylor deemed this a far-fetched scheme, but in the fog of war he faced at the time, I think it might have been more his desire not to prompt a rescue foray and to not lose the dogs and therefore the potential to carry out further sledging work that drove his decision to push on toward Vortex Island. The sledging surface conditions grew steadily worse as they pushed in that direction and their distances might yet further dwindle. That they lay closer to the depot than they did to Nordenwell's hut didn't carry any merit if they couldn't cover the final miles. Of all the miles Scott and co covered in their slog, it was the last 11 that really mattered. Regardless of the merit of the idea, James speaking up in the face of Taylor's authority rankled the leader and he never forgave the junior officer this temerity. Taylor donned his snowshoes and rustled the one pair of skis and together they tramped down a path they hoped might freeze solid enough to provide better sledging the following morning. It worked for the two miles they managed to break trail over, but after that, the sledges bogged down again and the dogs, reduced to one tin of bully beef per team per day, didn't do much pulling beyond that. At lunch that day, desperate to maintain face and to survive, in that order, apparently, Taylor scouted ahead for the best possible post-lunch surface. He found conditions gradually improved the closer he made toward Vega Island, the local winds having scoured the loose snow away as it bernoullied around the landmass. The others were wading through the deepest snow yet when he returned with the good news, though recent disappointments caused widespread scepticism. 
Perhaps it was a localised phenomenon. Perhaps Taylor was bullshitting to keep them moving. Dark moods in dark times require more than just rumours of beer and skittles. The evidence came soon enough. Taylor picked a winner that saved his face and their lives in that order. The transition came slow but inexorable, and the sledges glided across the surface by the evening halt. The following day they made ground in conditions that previously saw them lie abed. Strong winds, freezing fog, heavy drifting snow. They navigated by compass, and the sledges separated in the low visibility several times. Even the dogs picked up the exultant mood inspired by the movement, perhaps even alert to the proximity of the food at the depot. Dogs don't use compass and sextant, but they're not ignorant of navigation cues, and their sense of smell, forget about it. Nine miles. No kerosene equals no water. Thirsting throats gratefully received what moisture the team could suck out of their clothing, and in the absence of a hot meal, the sledges kept themselves going with lumps of the lump and sugar, sucked on for a glucose boost, but still not enough to ease the hunger or stem the rapid loss of condition. The next day, the party turned around a headland, and the altered wind regime in its lee saw them on similarly altered surfaces. Deep snow once more. The dogs lost what heart they gained on the previous day, and before long, two rode the larger sledge. Jimmy from the big boys and Mutt, leader of the odds and sods, played out to the point they couldn't even walk in their slack traces. James shot Mutt that evening, calling to his colleagues from the tent in which the butchering took place. It's all ready. I can cut it into 13 pieces or 17. Taylor? 13. Mac? 13. Vic? 13. It pained James to kill and cut up his canine companion, but the two pounds of meat each dog received might save far more lives than the one sacrificed to the task, and the unanimous human decision not to partake must have come as a relief in spite of the hunger pangs. James felt doubly bad when morning light revealed Vortex Island six miles in the distance. So close. Working over good surfaces once more, the team separated to increase their likelihood of finding a seal, but both reached the depot at around the same time, without experiencing any pinnipedal encounters. The depot moved wholesale onto the sledges, and the skis would never be left behind again. They carried on a few miles on the good surfaces in fine weather, and rewarded the dogs with double dog pemmican that evening. Anxiety over their predicament evaporated. They had food and fuel to spare for the remaining 20 miles back to Eagle Hut, so it surprises me that James and Russell ate a 40-year-old tin of pâté that evening. I don't eat brand new pâté, and would likely feed it to the dogs and then eat the dogs, if starvation started to push the diet in that direction. The weakness the pair experienced in harness the following day, which ended the efforts in the crook weather after just four miles, the duo ascribed to the musty tinned meat, but it turned out to be carbon monoxide poisoning brought on by another wind-folded ventilator flu. That evening, the dogs gave every indication they could smell something interesting, and James and Russell investigated, finding three seals lolling on the sea ice nearby. They killed the seals and brought the dog teams up in their turn, the dogs all but visibly reinflating as they gorged on the hot, bloody meat. 
the men cut steaks from the carcasses for themselves and enjoyed the invigorating antiscorbutic goodness of fresh seal. Always the curious scientist, Mac worked up a blubber stove based on that described in Nordenweld and Anderson's account of their time in the area, and gave it a trial run in the tent. It worked well, but the smitch unleashed, blackened everything inside the tent, and brought Canadian curses down upon the lichenologist's head. A rare occurrence, given the usual camaraderie between Mac and Taylor. The approach to the Trinity Peninsula shore turned well slushy in their absence. Russell and James urged their dogs to full pace, so momentum did most of the work in bridging the gap between solid surfaces. Following their line, Mac found the sledge breaking through the sea ice and sinking into the water, likely five fathoms deep, given the slope visible above the waterline and the distance from shore. While tall, Mac felt certain five fathoms was taller, and as the water passed her knees, resolved to attempt swimming through the thin crust to standable depths, but couldn't let go the handlebars. Some paroxysm gripped the sledger, and no matter how hard the lichenologist's brain worked the problem and insisted on the same conclusion, the hands didn't obey, and sledge and sledger continued sinking as one, and then stopped. A second ice layer lay beneath the first and the intermediate fluid, Alarmed colleagues arrived on site and helped haul the sodden mass of dogs and sledge and Mac out of the drink. Mac celebrated the 10th of September's birthday in a sleeping bag in a tent on the shores of the Trinity Peninsula, with the Primus going flat out and Taylor serving the last of the orange bitters fluid. An odd one, to be sure. They reached and began up the glacier to Summit Pass, and fully intended reaching the hut in spite of the gale blowing down from the surrounding peaks. The downhill run, covered in deep snow when they last passed that way on the uphill, now comprised polished ice. The slick surface caused many unintentional stretches of uncontrolled descent, with much damage to the sledges and much bruising but no broken bones to dogs and men. The backing wind, working in concert with gravity and low friction surfaces, made keeping upright difficult and stayed safe progress near impossible. Citing the sledge's crazy descent from Eagle House, the locals came out to greet the returnees. Dogs into the lines, tea on the brew, sledges unpacked, indoors for a big feed from Berry's Galley. Home and hosed after five weeks and 300 miles on the trail. Taylor still didn't forgive James questioning Taylor's leadership, but doesn't seem to have factored in that he could only resent the younger man because they'd all survived, and by a fucking narrow margin. If James died on the trail, resentment would be an unfair indictment of a victim of Taylor's poor planning, banking on contingencies he couldn't rely would fall his way. If Taylor died, he wouldn't be able to resent anyone ever again, a factor that seemed to help keep his clockwork well wound up into the 1990s. The story of the first sledging foray from Eagle House reads as small cheese compared to the big ticket items people died in Antarctica for previously, but dead is dead, no matter what you were doing at the time you died, and this foray ran as close to the margins of survival as many other narrow squeaks I've recounted, and there's several tales with similar premises we don't know much about, because no one survived, and we had to piece the story together from what little information was left to us. Some sad stuff lies in the offing. 
Little changed at Eagle House in the Sledge's absence. Japan surrendered, but the Sledge's knew this from radio broadcasts picked up on the otherwise useless walkie-talkie they'd left at the final desperate depot. The same gale that blew the trail party down the glacier also blew the sea ice out from Hut Cove, but besides that, the winter routine continued without pause. Snippets of news from the north suggested that the new British government was unlikely to abandon Antarctic occupation, but provided no details regarding the outlook for the existing bases and their occupants. With eight weeks before the worst of the anticipated spring storms came and went, the four sledges got their heads down over their field reports and in repairing the equipment, worn down and shaken apart by the vagaries of sledging life. Taylor amended his earlier plan, incorporating a sledging foray on the Larsen ice shelf and another into the Grahamland interior, to a single, more staid, revisit to and thorough survey of James Ross Island. This came about in response to his new, first-hand understanding of long-distance sledging in all its variability and stresses, and because he didn't want to miss the boat if the William Scoresby made a flying visit in the sort of trying circumstances under which the Eagle departed. Two winters in the far south seemed so fit, and a third engagement for the sake of arriving a day late from the trail didn't bear thinking about. James, frostbitten big toe, didn't recover and increasingly looked set for amputation, placing him outside further sledging considerations whether Taylor wanted him out or not. Davies replaced James with Russell and the odds and sods. November saw penguins return to Hope Bay and fresh eggs on the Eagle House menu. On the 5th, Marshall, Davies, Russell and Ashton headed to Deuce Bay to lay a depot. Marshall killing and caching three seals for en route dog food. Poor weather held the second sledge party back. Taylor, Mackenzie, Russell and Davies made their departure on the 9th, the dog teams incorporating two of the best developed adolescents from the puppy litters earlier in the year. Again, the departure received help from extra hands in the uphill push to Summit Pass. Five days later, the sledges returned under Davies and Russell, bringing back specimens and filling the sledge tanks with more supplies. The weather having held perfect, the party made excellent progress and took advantage of the situation, though conditions closed in behind them and prevented their departing Eagle House again until the 16th. James' toe healed enough to stay on his foot, and Doc Back allowed him to take up his outdoor dog care duties once more. Three more litters of pups saw 18 newcomers. Jimmy, the luckier of the two dogs to ride the sledge at the first sledging forays Nadir, caught a leg in a tethering chain and twisted up tight such that the blood supply couldn't stave off frostbite. The withered limb dangled uselessly from dead bone, and James only kept the lame but happy doggo alive long enough to cover a bitch just coming into heat as the accident happened. Such is the harsh calculus of working animals. James ensured maximum hybrid vigour and pulling power for minimum dog pemmican, distasteful as the euthanising proved for him. Still, if I'm ever slated to receive a bullet to the head, one last knee trembler and an opportunity at genetic immortality would certainly seem a better option than a final meal. December. Marshall made a boat and paddled it around the bay, seeking the best fishing, 
Marshall and James made a census of the local penguins. Doc Back worked on a new issue of the Hope Bay Howler, and Ashton made furniture and painted the hut, preparing to leave it in good repair for his successor, if one ever came. No word from the North as to their relief. Several requests to evacuate Bonner from Deception Island received no reply. The silence chafed. It's one thing to be stuck somewhere isolated, and it's entirely another to not know what those outside that space and in whose hands your future lies are up to. Tempers in Eagle House frayed. News on the 17th that the William Scoresby set out to retrieve Bonner lifted spirits a bit, and that the authorities at Stanley requested weekly ice reports from all three bases boded well. Dwindling food supplies already drained of what variety Berry and Blythe could wrangle out of what came ashore, provided a fairly colourless Christmas dinner, and the alcohol, long rationed and by then in very short supply, couldn't bridge the gap between the modal mood and bonhomie. On the 28th, Donachy received a message from the trail party. After seven weeks in harness, they approached Deuce Bay and wanted help cresting Summit Pass. Back Marshall, Matheson and Blythe heeded the call, taking a sledge and the three strongest remaining dogs out in the deteriorating weather and met their counterparts at the edge of the sea ice. Everyone hunkered down in a tent raised just before the wind got too strong to allow such an activity and the sledges enjoyed some of Berry's pastries and buns while each party got caught up with the other's news. In the early morning, with the sledges carrying only the specimens and instruments, they started back toward the summit pass and the weather let loose for the third time in as many journeys ends. Navigating by compass and blown all over the slick ice surface, the party then endured a final Antarctic slap in the face. Drenching, chilling rain. Fucking rain. Yes, they lived at the northernmost extension of the Antarctic Peninsula. Yes, it was approaching midsummer. Yes, they were almost home. But that's one of those moments where science takes pause, anthropomorphy kicks into high gear, and you just have to ask, really? Really, Antarctica? Rain? 500 miles of sledging saw the four southern noughts survey all the islands in the vicinity of James Ross Island, as well as large swathes of James Ross Island itself, and a small stretch of previously unvisited mainland coast. Met OBS, glaciology notes, wildlife notes, and the cache of instruments and equipment left behind in the survival dash during the previous sledging foray returned aboard the sledges along with over 200 kilograms of fossils and biological specimens. Their food and fuel proved sufficient such that several depots that might prove of use to future sledging parties dotted the shorelines they visited. Regular seal encounters kept the dogs fatter and happier than previously. The right kind of dull all up. Lots achieved and no one dead. Taylor expected at least some word about when to expect a ship, but beyond sometime in January, the radio gave no clues in his absence. He sent as impassioned an entreaty a shortwave mediated Morse code can afford to Sir Alan Cardinal, imploring that the governor give the spurs to Whitehall and get them some word as to their fate. No one at this end of the historical telescope knows if Sir Alan held enough sway with the colonial office that his input might speed things along, but Taylor felt better for the effort. 
he tried to lift Eagle House moods by sending Davies back out to lead Black, Marshall and Matheson in a shorter but much longed-for sledge trip to Shepherd Island, ostensibly to receive some cached materials. Once Stanley arranged an alternate doctor available for Bonner's care via radio, Back could head out, and the party departed on the 3rd of January. Ideal sledging conditions already passed, on a Tuesday, I believe, between 10 and 11 in the morning, and the relative summer heat saw Davies leading his newbies through pools of meltwater and slushy surfaces in which the two sledges wallowed. As with past sledging parties experiencing difficult surfaces, they switched to night operations in the hope the lower temperatures might firm the surfaces a bit, but a strategy that served numerous sledges well on the Ross Ice Shelf didn't make much difference near the northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. They returned from their 65-mile round trip on the 8th of January, elated at their excursion and suddenly thrust into emotional turmoil caused by the most recent incoming radio messages. Surgeon Commander Ted Bingham to take command of Operation Tabarin as a whole. The Fitzroy and another motor vessel would sail for the South Shetlands on the 9th. The Hope Bay Party should expect collection by the 17th. Bastards! Silence for so long, and now the news they had scant days to wrap up their data series, complete their reports, hand over all the documentation and new charts and data to Russell, the only Eagle House resident staying on, and pack their kit and get out of Dodge. And Taylor's gazumping by Bingham, while likely seen as an expedient at the far end of the arrangements, caused a lot of umbrage at Hope Bay, where familiarity made the prickly Canadian one of their own. After so long in isolation, any outsider seemed like a kind of... outsider. Donachy received a message on the 11th. Expect the William Scoresby on the 12th. The 12th and the 13th passed in a malaise of agitated waiting, the ship returning to Deception Island due to heavy pack ice in Antarctic Sound. At quarter past three in the morning of the 14th, Captain Marchese tore into the hut with the memorable opening gambit Hey, you fuckers, don't you want to be relieved? No one heard the ship or its whistle over the gale blowing outside. Dr. James Andrew, Back's replacement, recorded the sudden tumult their arrival caused, with men scurrying to shore and back, Berry making tea, James arranging to stay on in the Met Ob's roll until the rest of the replacement crew arrived, and people generally falling over themselves to get gone, while ensuring they didn't leave anything important behind, and didn't take anything important that needed leaving behind. The weather continued foul, and it took four hours to shuttle three tonnes of outgoing goods and 70 crates of specimens to the ship, freeboating about the bay to avoid getting hemmed in by moving ice. As the trio left ashore, gave their final waves goodbye, and headed back into Eagle House, the departees tore into the long-awaited mailbags and devoured the correspondence with the pent-up enthusiasm anyone who checks their social media updates hourly may never experience or understand. Freshies from the galley. News from home. Thrumming engines propelling them north. All good. At 1900 hours they reached Whalers Bay, where the Fitzroy and the Trapassi, replacement for the Eagle and under the command of Captain Shepard, lay at anchor. Commander Bingham, in charge of what now officially bore the name the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey, 
asked Taylor to his cabin aboard the Fitzroy to give his report. Bingham expressed surprise at how much Operation Tabarin achieved in its first two years. The lack of information being a two-way thing, with the bureaucrats as the dead zone, it seems. Taylor learnt the size and shape of what Whitehall kept to itself for so long. Bingham's remit involved establishing base E in Marguerite Bay and staffing another base in the South Orkneys. The Trapassi carried stores and the replacement personnel for Hope Bay. Taylor's team would sail aboard the Fitzroy with the departing Deception Island personnel, collect the departees from Port Lockroy and sail on to Stanley. Some of the Hope Bay returnees headed ashore to meet the new base B personnel and to look over the second tranche of dogs brought south. There, they met Samuel Bonner, and his weakened and gaunt state shocked the visitors. They knew he'd been severely ill, but the physical disjunct between the man they dropped off and the one they met now jarred them all. Dr Andrew and the new Deception Island medico, Stuart Slesser, had time to make examinations sufficient to confirm Back's radio diagnosis of stomach cancer. Bonner expressed good cheer at heading home to the Falklands after such a miserable year, either oblivious to or putting the best possible spin on the extremely short-term prognosis. The visit to Port Lockroy aboard the Fitzroy saw Laver, Lockley, White and Biggs swap out with their replacements and several chinstrap penguins taken aboard, destined for the London Zoo. Captain Pitt set a course for the South Orkneys, catching up with the Trapassi and the William Scoresby en route, but a message from Governor Cardigan diverted the Fitzroy towards Stanley. After so long updating the outside world about Bonner's condition and months calling for his evacuation at the earliest possible opportunity, Back felt justifiably pissed off at this 11th hour acknowledgement of his diagnosis and its implications. Bonner died two weeks after leaving Deception Island. The seven-knot transit north allowed change to arrive slowly on the Fitzroy. Frozen rime melted from the rigging. Ocean birds paid their visits. The smell of peat smoke and vegetation awoke olfactory neural pathways long dormant. To anyone travelling the reverse path, the Falklands vegetation appears spare after the greenery of Patagonia. But to people arriving from two years of rocks and ice, it looked and smelt verdant. Houses, women children, old people, strangers. Stanley made the expeditioners welcome, housing, feeding and entertaining the two-year Antarctic veterans. They departed Stanley on the 11th of February and after the briefest of stops in Montevideo, other than for Bonner, who stayed on there for the rest of his life. Bureaucracy split the party into military and civilian contingents on separate ships. Taylor managed to reunite both contingents at Freetown for the passage home aboard the HMS Ajax, but the official snubbing didn't end there. When the ship tied up at Chatham, the few people on the wharf turned up to see the Ajax crew members. No one met the taverns. Three hours on, James Wordy arrived to say well done, but without news of accommodations made on their behalf. No hotel bookings, no welcome home dinner, no stipend in lieu of back pay. Taylor cashed a personal cheque with the purser of the Ajax and doled out some cash to help see his colleagues through the weekend, but even with hard currency in hand, three of them dossed down in an air aid shelter for the night after failing to find accommodation. Taylor tried to report to Brian Roberts, 
but found the former BGLE man indifferent to his presence. Five years away from Canada, yet to meet his son, and sick of the treatment the tail end of Operation Tabaroon received, he wrote his report while staying with friends in Sussex, and pissed off across the Atlantic, bitter toward the Operation Tabaroon coordinators with good reason. The Colonial Office provided no budget to publish expedition records, and those completed by the relevant experts got filed under I for irrelevant, until the jostling for primacy in Antarctica heated up, and the bureaucrats needed some documents to what, I mean, evidence of rigorous British science carried out at high latitudes for the benefit of all humanity. Taylor seemed to dislike Ma from early in their association, but his perception of an unwarranted difference in the rewards handed out in the wake of Operation Tabarin saw that resentment fester long and hot. Stephen Havelsey speculates that where leadership fell to Ma as the first choice of the committee, it fell Taylor's way through short-term necessity, and that this might explain the paranoia evident in his journals and reports. When Berry, a sizable thorn in Taylor's side, sought to resign from the expedition shortly after Ma's departure, Taylor convinced him to stay on. But where a similar entreaty to Flett at around the same time seems geared to ensure a good man stayed on to perform his duties well, it seems likely Taylor's desire to see Berry stay on arose from a fear that such a departure might reflect poorly on his leadership, particularly in the eyes of Sir Alan. Taylor complained about Mars drinking long and loud to anyone who asked after his experiences at Port Lockroy, but it was only long after Mars and Sir Alan Cardinal's death that Taylor wrote that Governor Cardinal cited Mars handing over the leadership to Taylor as the best thing the Scotsman achieved in his year at the helm, which doesn't seem to fit with what Mars achieved in concert with Sir Alan, and certainly doesn't do justice to the job of work Mars did in bringing the project together in secret, at short notice, in a nation beset by shortages and the figurative and literal roadblocks caused by war. Taylor complained about the Canadian Army's late notification of his promotion to Major under the British remit, and never forgave anyone involved that he only ever received the Bronze Polar Medal, where Ma received the Silver. And in case any listeners are expecting the British Honours System to follow any set pattern of logic or externally coherent tradition, there is no gold. Taylor continued in the Canadian Armed Forces, working on the early warning radar system in the Canadian Arctic, and in developing techniques for the rapid establishment of emergency air bases from Tundra, which involved flamethrowers and sounds like fun on a bun. Taylor wrote, Two years below the horn, immediately after his return from the south, but couldn't find a publisher willing to print it. It received its first print run in 2017, a quarter century after his death, when Canadian academics Daniel Haight and P. Whitney Lackenbauer found and edited the manuscript to celebrate the legacy of the first Canadian to lead an Antarctic expedition. I find Taylor hard to like because of his prickliness, but I'm not sure I'm in a strong position to criticise him on that front, and his bitterness at the way his team were treated in the wake of their two years' service seems, even at this remove, entirely warranted. Elkin McKenzie continued in botany in Argentina and then the United States. Mackenzie's manuscript, The Secret South, received a similar lack of interest from publishers, only going to press in 2018 under the editing guidance of Stephen Haddlesey and Ronald Lewis Smith. The editors note where Mackenzie diverged from a strict chronology of expedition events, in the interest of driving the reader along with as little repetition and tedious recounting of hut life as possible, 
but note that the author's elfin sense of humour may make The Secret South one of the less reliable Antarctic memoirs. Given that I love the way she wrote, and that I regularly pretend I'm brewing up in an abandoned dive hut on the shores of Ross Island, I make no apology for using several passages wholesale in this episode to illustrate particular events or phenomena. The Secret South stands alongside The Worst Journey in the World and Big Dead Place as a cracking good Antarctic read, head and shoulders above a lot of the more turgid or less self-aware tomes arising from the region, and entirely free of the self-aggrandisement of Bird's or Borschgraving's publications. Elke Mackenzie returned to Antarctica to study algae. Based at McMurdo Station and working around the peninsula under the aegis of the National Science Foundation during two summer seasons, Operation Gooseflesh, as Mackenzie named the project, involved scuba-based collecting for herbarium-quality algae specimens for the Farlow Herbarium at Harvard, where she served as director. In 1973, Carol W. Dodge published Lichen Flora of the Antarctic Continent and Adjacent Islands, working on material collected under Bird's, Mawson's and Seipel's projects. This gazumped Mackenzie's 35-year magnum opus and, according to contemporary reviews, applied some unsupported systematic assumptions and split specimens into species on spurious morphological grounds. Mackenzie abandoned work on what likely would have been the more authoritative volume, and the notes and diagrams remain unpublished. One biogeographical note sustains in the pages of The Secret South, disputing Paul Seipel's assertion that previous periods of glaciation likely sent all plant life extinct in Antarctica as recently as the Pleistocene. Mackenzie thought the complex phylogeny on display in the Antarctic lichen flora didn't support so recent a recolonisation process as Seipel's hypothesis required, being more indicative of on-site evolution over a longer span. She retired to Costa Rica in 1972, making a final move to live with her daughter after being diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease in the 1980s. Elke Mackenzie died in 1990. In both Taylor's and Mackenzie's cases, the editors did magnificent work setting the respective texts in both the contemporary and the modern context by their own introductions, careful attention to the hard yards of editing, and accompanying notes and references. Fuck knows how many similar documents like Gathering Dust, their perspectives denied us because Simon and & Schuster and the like had better things to do, like offer book deals to Milo Yiannopoulos, and running their presses to get Ben Shapiro's true allegiance into the hands of people who really need to know how a try-hard raconteur thinks action and political intrigue should read. Fuck. You should write a book, Matt. Yeah. The writing part's easy, by which I mean hard, but easier than the hard part. Getting something published in a manner that sees it read by anyone is the trick, let alone getting paid for it. So, fuck again. Ma continued working in oceanography after the war, returning to the Discovery Institute and later taking up the role of Principal Scientific Officer at the National Institute of Oceanography in 1949. He died in 1965. After Tabarin, David James wrote, Prisoner's Progress, recounting his escape from the POW camp for serialised publication in magazine form, later going to press as a book retitled Escaper's Progress. He returned to Antarctica as technical advisor and John Mills' body double for the filming of the 1948 movie 
Scott of the Antarctic. Operating under the FIDS aegis, he guided a film crew through their southern foray, gathering the footage around which John Mills and co. reenacted the fatal polar trek. James wrote Scott of the Antarctic, the film and its making, recounting the experience, and later penned That Frozen Land, recounting his time in the south at Hope Bay. He went into politics becoming a Conservative MP for Sussex in 1959. Rees, who stayed on at Hope Bay for a second year under the leadership of Russell, is slated to return to ice coffee narratives in episodes covering the Norwegian-British-Swedish expedition of 1949. Blythe returned for a second winter at Port Lockroy, but found absent the construction and sledging projects, the year of data accumulation and household chores didn't inspire the same zest, and though he always cited his time in Antarctica as working life highlights, he didn't return after 1948. He also wrote an account of his experiences that remains unpublished. When the Royal Navy passed responsibility for Operation Tabarin on to the Colonial Office, the Colonial Office made the name change. No longer a military initiative, the British occupancy of space in Antarctica ceased being an operation, though its occupants occupied bases until 1969, when the nomenclature changed to reflect the civilian nature of the program, at which point they became stations. Tom Berry returned to chief stewarding aboard ships, working the Newfoundland run. He died in 1978 at the age of 82. Matheson returned to merchant service, working as a boatswain aboard cargo ships before taking a job in a distillery to better care for his sick wife. He died in 1970. Jock Lockley worked in fisheries management for the colonial office in Africa and the Bahamas, dying in 1990. Russell worked for the Iraq Petroleum Company's surveying department from 1949 until retirement in 1972, and died in 2000. Bill Flett returned to tertiary teaching in Glasgow. He became a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, retired in 1965, and died in 1979. Eric Back worked in paediatrics in the West Indies for most of his professional career, retiring to Norfolk in 1972 and dying in 1992. Farrington worked for the Atomic Energy Research Establishment in Radiation Detection, dying in 2002. Norman Lather worked in commercial aviation until hearing difficulties forced his retirement. He died in 1983. Donachie returned to working at sea, but that's the last anyone from the expedition or the FIDS heard of him. Chippy Ashton spent months categorising and labelling expedition photographs for the colonial office, before taking a job at a flour mill. Dust inhaled in the course of his work contributed to his death, but no other details are available. Gwyn Davies worked on coastal trade vessels before studying agriculture and taking work in fisheries research and aquaculture, in part inspired by the hunger he experienced while on the trail in Antarctica. He wanted to increase food production and to feed people who experienced hunger as part of their day-to-day existence, and who couldn't look forward to a good dinner on reaching base. Davies died in 2005. Captain Marchese stayed on in the Royal Navy, serving as first lieutenant aboard the aircraft carrier HMS Unicorn during the Korean War. 
retiring from the Navy at age 45 and having reached the rank Lieutenant Commander. He captained the historic tea clipper Cutty Sark and died at age 92 in 2007. Norman Freddie Marshall worked in oceanography through the University of Hull and later at the Natural History Department of the British Museum and up to retirement in 1977 as the Chair of Zoology at Queen Mary College, London University. Marshall died in 1996. Gordon Hawkins stayed on in the Falkland Islands to provide meteorological services to the Air Ministry and returned to Antarctica as part of the FIDS during a further three service periods on secondment from his Air Ministry employers. He received an MBE for his services and lived at least until 2014 when Stephen Haddlesey noted him as the last surviving member of the original Operation Tabarin cohort, aged 96. Unless my internet searches keep missing an obituary, there's a chance he's still alive and 100, and that's another sign that iced coffee is getting closer to the present day. Where once I could get in touch with the great-granddaughter of a member of the ITAE, and more recently I enjoyed correspondence with the son and granddaughter of a member of the BGLE, now I'm able to write to people involved in the expeditions themselves. I don't, but I'm able to. I might start, but the prospect is daunting. At the moment, I can babble into my recorder and few people care if I get something wrong or come to a different conclusion to them. Robert R. Johnson held Admiral Byrd in high regard, as most naval personnel who served under him did. Does he really want to talk to an Australian who doesn't? He told his story very effectively to Thomas Henderson, who then made it available in documentary form as Boats, available from Graceful Willow Productions, and highly recommended by every member of the production team for this podcast. It is a mental gear shift for the series though, this catching up with history business. The continuous nature of the FIDS also poses a challenge to the narrative I'm trying to generate in Ice Coffee. How does a series accustomed to recounting discrete projects adapt to incorporate open-ended research programs? Pretty much the same way I dealt with the sustained Argentine presence at Orcada Station is the answer to that question. I'll give the FIDS time when they do something interesting, and there's plenty of that in the offing, almost straight away, in fact, though a lot of scientific endeavour, the bulk of the activity at scientific stations, while inherently interesting to me, comprises the gradual accumulation of data by people capable of sustained concentration in situations or using instruments a lot of people might find tedious. Science is the single most powerful tool humanity has yet devised for working out what the fuck's going on, but the actual data at the back end of the process isn't exciting unless you're the one analysing it and synthesising the findings into meaningful outcomes for others to use as the next stepping stone in understanding the universe and finding the shortcuts that make our existence easier. Another mental gear shift lies ahead at some point in order to reflect the modal shift from short, sharp excursions south to slow, steady accumulations of experience and information, such as Orcada Station and Bransfield House stand as harbingers of. I've only got so many discrete expeditions left to recount before the International Geophysical Year saw a bunch of nations kick off permanent presences in Antarctica, and likely the series will need to find some new mode by which to recount the passage of time and the accompanying achievements and milestones. I do like having something to ponder, so I'll get on with pondering that while you take care and appreciate your coffee.